is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, safely 235 miles from Washington, D.C., in New York City, New York. Um, uh, we are joined, however, uh, from Washington, D.C., um, by uh, our, our, our dependable Monday uh, 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 friends, um, uh, Rosa Brooks, who is in Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And Corey Shockey, who's in Washington, maybe, Corey? Exactly right, David. Um, and, and in New York City, where we, I just feel safer knowing she's here, uh, we have our friend Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist. Hi, Lori. How are you? I'm good. I'm not too far, though, from one of our new hot epicenters here in Brooklyn. Yeah, apparently the New York City has, uh, big, or the state has shut down something like 20 school districts or something for hot spots. We have quite um, a number all of a sudden. Yeah, and I think when we get to the end of our discussion here, we should, uh, we should talk a little bit about what's going on because it seems like the national prognosis is getting somewhat worse. But we thought we would talk today uh, in what's a kind of a combination of the conversations we've been having on Thursday and the conversations we've been having on Monday. And that is to look at what's going on in this dysfunctional White House from the perspective, not just of health and health policy, but also national security policy and you know, is this any way to run a government? And I think the best place to begin, if everybody's okay with it, is to get your take, Lori, on the literally hourly revelations that we're getting out of what seems to have been what is called a super spreader event in the White House that has now claimed the president and the first lady and the press secretary and three senators and the head of Notre Dame University, and so on and so on, uh, as victims. So on September 26th, there was a ceremony in the Rose Garden to nominate uh, Amy Coney Barrett as a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. And in that small audience, seated tightly side by side, almost no one wearing a mask, uh, we can now actually draw little circles around one by one as people test positive. Uh, and by my count, we're up to 14 cases connected to that event, uh, though I'm sure it's considerably more than that. These are just the ones that we're hearing about. And from there, the president continued moving about the country. He went to Duluth. He went to uh, New Jersey, he went to Pennsylvania, uh, and at every event there were people he had to rub shoulders with, individuals he was raising money from, um, rallies in airport hangars, uh, and 
God knows how many people ultimately uh, this super spreader event will be connected to, but it's clearly the largest super spreader event we've seen since the Sturgis motorcycle rally, and it may come to eclipse it. It certainly already has in political terms. Um, I, I should say that we've also been joined by our friend, Dr. Kavita Patel, who is both practicing physician, a former Obama White House staffer, also former staffer uh, for the Senate. Hi, Kavita. Hi, David. Sorry to be late. It's it's okay. Lori is sort of providing the uh, the overview of where things stand in the White House. Let me go to, to Corey and Rosa, and then I'll come back to you. Corey, um, as a national security professional, how do you react to all this? I react that it's extremely bad for the nation's security that the White House has not for seven months been using the president's bully pulpit to uh, to circulate reliable uh, public health information and to model behavior that all of of the rest of us can keep ourselves and our communities safe by practicing. But the, the alarm of the president being whisked off to Walter Reed, the doctors lying, both everybody seemingly lying about what's happening, creates an enormous amount of uncertainty. And then there's the president's own reckless behavior, the little um, SUV trip the other day. These are things that are extremely unsteadying and leave lots of opportunities for others to capitalize on the lack of public trust by interfering in our elections, by undertaking other activities invidious to our security while we are so desperately doom focused on what's going on in our own country. So, Rosa, as we've talked about on the podcast week in and week out, you've been actively involved in this effort to. Um, imagine scenarios for the disruption of the election, which has led the far right to say that you were actually planning to disrupt it. And I was wondering how you managed to engineer this, because this is a real masterpiece of inside work on your part. Tell me about it. Um, I did see one extremist right-wing website that said that I and the Transition Integrity Project had, had 100 Chinese communist employees at our beck and call. Um, I must say that those 100 Chinese communist employees have been a real disappointment to me. They're not doing any work as far as I can tell. Um, but no, it, it is difficult to single-handedly destroy the Republic, um, but someone's got to do it, David. Um, I, I mean, th- this, this stuff is crazy. Um, it's, it's, it's a combination of extreme cynicism on the part of the people who are knowingly peddling this, these nonsensical conspiracy theories and extreme and very sad gullibility on the part of a surprisingly large number of Americans who are willing to swallow this kind of garbage um, that they're being fed. And that the real irony, as as Lori started out by saying, and Corey says, is that the Trump administration is doing an excellent job of uh, damaging the Republic all by itself through a combination of uh, recklessly irresponsible COVID-related policies and practices that are now literally putting into mortal jeopardy Uh, the leadership of this country, both in the White House and in Congress, um, but also, of course, by their sort of broader forms of irresponsible behavior, uh, deliberately sowing doubt on the willingness of the president to um, abide by the results of the election in November uh, and on uh, his willingness to peacefully transfer power if, if Joe Biden gets the majority of the votes that are cast as polls currently suggest that Biden is, is very, very likely to do. Um, so, so no, I think this is a really dangerous moment, um, both because, uh, you know, as, as Lori and, and Corey noted, uh, as we get into winter, there is every likelihood that, that COVID will get worse, not better in this country. I, you know, I sincerely hope that there is a vaccine soon that is effective, uh, but as we know that uh, that will take time before it can be distributed to enough people uh, and as we know, you know, treatments are improving uh, for COVID and more different kinds of rapid tests are likely to become available. But but I, it's an open question whether those advances can outpace the spread as Americans stay indoors more in colder weather and so forth. 
Um, so things are things are going to get worse on that front. Uh, the our adversaries can see that we are extremely distracted. You know, at best we are extremely distracted. At worst, we're on the cusp of a major constitutional crisis, possibly even even worse than that. Uh, and you know, I, I I certainly hope that the remaining, if there are any remaining adults in the room, uh, whether at the White House, the State Department, the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies, that they are very closely monitoring what uh, the various actors who aren't terribly fond of the United States are up to. Because if I were them, I would certainly be thinking, this is an excellent time to cause all kinds of mischief because the US is not gonna be able to respond. They're too tied up in knots themselves. So Kavita, even as we have been sitting here, our president has been hard at work doing what he does, which is tweeting. And literally three minutes ago, he tweeted the following. I will be leaving the great Walter Reed Medical Center. I'm sure they're glad for his endorsement. Today at 6.30 PM, feeling really good, exclamation point. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago, exclamation point. So I'm just your average listener, but what I'm getting from that is COVID's no problem, but if I get it, I'm gonna feel better than I did before. So is that it? Is that a good me- message? Yes, it's a it's a great. I mean, my gosh, David, I, I feel better already just hearing it. Um, I I don't if even only, know. Uh, I, I have could see Lori's face as we. I have no. I I you know, Lori, come on, isn't that reassuring? Don't you, don't you feel like you can go out again? I I'll say this, and and Lori and uh, some other friends and I have had spirited email traffic about some of this. I would say. Uh, you know, every single medical professional has cringed. I mean, these are truly cringeworthy tweets, videos, moments. I also find it highly amusing that it took the president himself to be hospitalized for him to say things like, this is real. So 210,000 deaths, 7 million infections in the United States alone, not to mention, apparently he and Herman Cain, he could give less of a shit about Herman Cain because the man died from one of his rallies. And apparently that didn't matter because at that point, Herman Cain doesn't look like him or it truly kind of, he doesn't see himself in Herman Cain's age profile, gender, et cetera. So I think that it's so difficult for me to process. And so as a result of that, for everything we've talked about, not to mention, I don't know if this has come up, but, um, we're all still asking, you know, the Trump and Melania, that's the second generation of infections. We have not talked about, and Lori, you, I don't know, you know, you may have talked about it, but we, we still have had no contact tracing to understand where this came from. And now I'm not a paranoid person, but we're making assumptions that this was casual contact and not something more kind of purposeful. And then on top of that, between Kaylee McEnany and all of that, they're doing this kind of song and dance where they're not acknowledging that they're now part of that third and tertiary kind of consent, you know, circle of infections, they should shut down the White House complex for a deep cleansing, and they should not have anything but the bare minimum personnel. And and if the president goes back, which is what all of us expect this 3 p.m. presser to say that he might be doing, all the more reason to treat like kind of that unit, that entire complex with the EEOB like a special pathogens unit, <laughs> because that's what it is. <laughs> so it's just, it's amazing to me while we're, you know, that it's just so many levels of amazing. And all I can say is that it's why we're seeing Biden just climbing ahead in the polls, even in swing states that we thought were too close to call, which they still might be. Um, and I've also heard from the Harris Biden-Harris campaigns themselves that you know they're trying to really scramble to understand this debate that was in the Times today about whether they should be quarantining, and they're not doing that on purpose. Can I ask a question for for Kavita, for you and Lori, um, as 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 experts on uh, disease and COVID and medicine? Um, 
I, I have somewhat been assuming that everything we've been reading about Trump getting this or that experimental treatment doesn't necessarily tell us anything whatsoever about his symptoms, because I feel pretty confident that Trump has been saying to his doctors, yeah, give me that, give me that, I want that, I want that, give me that. Um, but but it, it seems like a active duty military medical professionals are in a kind of an awkward situation when their patient is also the commander in chief. And I wonder if you have thoughts on that or what the ethical or legal obligations of those physicians are in this kind of situation, because certainly the, the information that has come out is both sparse and, and often contradictory. Yeah, I have, I've been writing about this quite a bit because it, everybody that has been a physician for the president since Bornstein, who he fired, and then had the Secret Service go in and seize 35 years worth of medical records. I forgot about heart. that. That was just in like epoch one of Trump, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, every subsequent physician has been an active duty military personnel. That means that they're treating their commander in chief. And when you're treating your commander in chief, there's a limited amount of authority you as a physician can wield over the patient. Um, and in this case, clearly, I mean, no physician I can imagine would have approved him getting into that SUV for a quick spin around to say to wave at the crowd, um, putting his Secret Service detail in a hermetically sealed compartment with him. That was absolutely unconscionable. Uh, but it, I think there is something to say about whether or not, indeed, uh, he needs he needs to have. Uh, control over what medicines he's receiving. I don't think, however, that the president has the knowledge base to even say dexamethasone. Um, my, my fear is that one of two things is going on. Either A, and I really would like to know what Kavita thinks about this, either A, he is um, being administered a very poorly planned concoction of medicine and treatment. Um, perhaps at his insistence, who knows, but it's really crappy medicine. Or B, he's far sicker than anyone is revealing. It makes no sense to be simultaneously receiving something that's supposed to boost your immune response and give you targeted antibodies to go in and kill the virus, and at the same time, be receiving a steroid to dampen your immune response. Why would you have them together? That's sort of like saying, I want to put you right next to a speaker with, you know, 800 decibel noise coming at you and simultaneously give you aspirin to get rid of your headache. Why would you put those two together? Kavita, what do you think? I agree, Lori. And I also think that on top of that, the issue with, these are good doctors, Put aside Sean Conley, who I think Lori is incredibly, lots of issues we can talk about there. I actually know some of those doctors from Hopkins that were standing specifically, you know, the pulmonary critical care doctors. They're smart people. They've run COVID units themselves. I think that the problem is that Trump puts these very intelligent people like Fauci in these incredibly uncomfortable positions, causing them to compromise their very nature and essence of what they would do. And with respect to the kind of experimental treatments I actually didn't find the choice of the monoclonal antibody cocktail and then even the argument to use remdesivir. Those actually are consistent with what we would, I think we're missing pieces of information, but I could see that being the case that those are natural. Using the dexamethasone, such a clear outlier because when the evidence illustrates when that should be used, as well as the side effects of that medication in a 74 year old, that is where there is just a break in judgment or not judgment of the medical staff, but there's just, we're not getting information. And that is exactly what Lori is saying is that these are military commander. This is their commander in chief. And he's putting them in that position. Unlike Reagan. I mean, think of every president who has had a medical ailment, including Barack Obama, who's a smoker they have always kind of erred on the side of deferring judgment to professionals. This is a president that doesn't do that. Corey, you talk a lot on this podcast and in your life about civil military relations. This is an interesting subset of all of that because you've got a bunch of folks who are in the military or in the chain of command who are reporting to the patient. 
Um, so I'm actually a lot less concerned about this as an issue of civil military relations, because for the most part, civil military relations are about ensuring the reliable subordination of the active duty uniform force to poli elected political control. And these guys are very, very subordinated. <laughs> exactly right. Um, oh, we may want to have a conversation about, you know, why does the president have military doctors rather than civilian doctors? There's no obvious reason to me why the president should go to Walter Reed Medical Center rather than the trauma unit at George Washington or any place else. But I am personally not concerned about those poor, terribly lying uh, naval commanders who were confronted with the Klieg-like glare of the national political reporting scrum and had no idea how to lie with any credibility at all about what the president is experiencing. I, I just don't think that's the most important part of this problem. Well, I can, I can tell you that from direct communication with him that Tony Fauci has not been consulted. Now, that to me is astounding. You have the world's expert on this disease. He's on your payroll. He answers to you as president of the United States and your medical team hasn't asked for his advice. Uh, and similarly, we have an absolute epidemiology 101 textbook ex example of a apparent cluster of cases that requires uh, you know, expertise from epidemiologists to go in and track it and figure out the chain of transmission. And it would be uh, absolutely essential to understand how much this will spill out to other key foci of power across Washington, D.C., the Senate, the House, um, key agencies, uh, the Justice Department, and so on. Uh, this is a time to call on your Centers for Disease Control expertise. This is a time to bring in the top A1 crackerjack group of epidemiologists, set them loose and figure it out. But of course, CDC has been specifically forbidden from entering into this picture. So now what we have all over the internet is amateur hour. Everybody chiming in. I just saw this person was seated here and this one was seated here. So this one gave it to that one. Um, and then, I mean, what really terrifies me is the idea that we, I, I personally don't know who the heck is running the country at this very moment, but the idea that the president may still be seriously ill, um, his own judgment impaired, that he's insisting that he's returning to the White House today, um, that he will pr probably continue to not appropriately wear PPE to protect others, and he will be roaming the hallways of the West Wing, uh, perhaps heading down to the kitchen at three in the morning for another hamburger uh, and infecting everybody all over the damned White House, all over everybody he comes into contact with. Um, and this is, this is terrifying, really. It's so out of control. Who is in charge? Who is the wisdom guiding this situation? As far as I can tell, as an American citizen and a voter, I'm I'm witnessing chaos. Rosa, you're nodding. Yes, chaos. I always it, nod. Yeah, no, and chaos is your thing, I know. But the, the, it, it seems like the lesson the president has learned, because he said he learned a lesson, is that he was right all along and that every wrong decision he's made so far, he needs to redouble. Uh, uh, you know, he, he does not seem to have learned anything. Um, well, he's now ever, gone to school actually. in COVID. Hmm? Ever, actually. Ever. 
that's true too. But he he says he's now gone to school on COVID, and in fact, he now has surrogates out there who are saying essentially that a real weakness of Biden's candidacy is that he doesn't have the kind of firsthand experience with COVID that President Trump does. <laughs> the suggestion being that you uh, Biden should really, if he's serious about this whole presidency business, he should immediately go out and get infected. I can see that the Trump team is doing its darndest to you know help him uh, on that one. Um, like not actually being honest about their testing status prior to the last debate and uh, insisting they want to full speed ahead with uh, future debates um, without adequate precautions. So, no, I mean, I mean, the way this is being spun already, and I think I think just as we have been having this conversation, uh, Trump, Trump has tweeted uh, that, you know, as you said earlier, that he feels better than he did 20 years ago, that nobody needs to let COVID dominate their life. So so the way that they're attempting to spin this is, see, we told you so. COVID is kind of like the flu. It's no big deal. Plus, Trump is so virile and strong and tough that, you know, uh, he's going to beat COVID. COVID can't possibly beat him and nobody needs to worry. Everything is fine. Uh, the insistence on wearing masks and on lockdowns and COVID-related restrictions is all a democratic plot to destroy the economy. I'm not quite sure why the Democrats want to destroy the economy like that, but apparently they do, according to Trump world. And, and that's the spin. I don't think it will change the minds of any Biden voters. I don't think it will change the minds of any Trump voters. It remains to be seen whether it will have any impact on the, you know, three and a half Americans who have not yet made up their mind at this point. Um, <laughs> but but that certainly is the claim, is that everything is fine and Trump is now an expert. And, and contrary to Corey's very mean, very unfair allegation, Trump is has learned everything he needs to know and he is an expert and the rest of you people should shut up because unless you have walked in Donald Trump's shoes, you can't speak about this issue. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that is most astonishing about this, and I, I find it amazing that almost four years into Trump, I'm capable of being astonished by anything. I was astonished by last week's debate, I will tell you that, David, if it makes you feel better. Despite the fact that I also thought nothing he does could shock me, I was shocked by his, the badness of his bad behavior. Right. And particularly made worse when you hear stories that Chris Christie was advising him to do it because it, it was likely to, 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 to trigger Joe Biden's stuttering. Um, but, but, you know, Lori, the, 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 what is astonishing to me is that somehow you've had this catastrophic event at the White House. And the president is managing to use it to make his disastrous response to this crisis worse. Now, I've seen, and, and, and let me ask you, as, as, as our expert here on this, estimates that say that it's possible that by the end of December, 370,000 Americans will have died of this disease. It's possible that we are entering a new period in which um, we're going to see enhanced spread and, and more risk from this disease. And at just that moment, he's saying, A, I've been through it, so I'm really the only person qualified to talk about it, and B, it ain't nothing. The people who died of COVID, losers and suckers. Suckers and losers. What was in it for them? Lori, what's what, what is the prognosis for the pandemic right now, just to put the Trump response in some context? Well, David, yesterday, uh, Tedros, the head of the director general of World Health Organization said 10% of the planet has been infected. Uh, that means several things. First, it means it's spread quite rampantly to every single corner of the world. But it also means that uh, we're awfully far from anything that could be herd immunity. In other words, if herd immunity is at 90% infection saturation with uh, antibodies produced by all that 90%, we're, we're nowhere close. And the death toll we're taking, allowing the virus to continue circulating, is absolutely overwhelming. We're seeing huge second wave across Europe uh, just uh, today, 
the government of Sweden acknowledge that their experiment with awaiting herd immunity has failed and that they're going to have uh, a COVID crisis for, quote, at least another year. Um, Great Britain is struggling to figure out what in the world they're going to do. They're seeing a huge surge. It's out of control. And they've tried, you know, policy A, policy B, policy C. Uh, and of course, India and Brazil remain these absolutely enormous epidemics. No one believes their numbers. They're surely gross undercounts and they show no sign of control whatsoever. So uh, on a global scale, we're in, we're in the classic shitstorm without a doubt. Um, nationally, our, our problems are as much political as they are biological. And uh, the, on the political side, I don't see how this gets resolved. I mean, is, is Trump's mindset that he's going to now start meeting with people, ignoring all concepts of isolation and quarantine, start meeting with people and his mantra will be, it's not as bad as everybody says. It's really no big deal. Like I told you months ago, it's just kind of a bad flu. Is that going to be his strategy? What happens if one of the people who's been a contact in the Rose Garden or subsequent events um, here in New Jersey, for example, at the fundraiser or the fundraiser that was in a private home in Minnesota, about which we've heard very little. Um, what happens if somebody dies or ends up in intensive care for weeks on end going all the way up to the election or beyond then? How does that affect the conversation? Is his spin going to be, well, you know, as he said famously, almost nobody gets this disease, almost nobody dies of this disease. Uh, it's only elderly with bad hearts and elderly with this and that. He clearly is trying to say to the world, I don't fit that category. I'm so healthy, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, Look at that old doddering Joe Biden, three years older than me. He's falling apart. Me, strong like a bull, right? And so I'm going to punch through this virus and I'm going to start meeting with people and I'll be the super spreader. I, David, I have to say, I mean, nothing, no wild, you know, imaginings on my part could have put us at this point. I, I just... You know, six months ago, if you told me this is where we were going to be, I just would have thought you've been taking some very interesting hallucinogenic drugs. Which I had not been. So, so Corey, you know, you and I and, and uh, uh, have spent most of our lives sort of studying how the system works, how presidents work, how, how national security apparatus works. And you know the way institutions tend to be built is that they're 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 built to deal with the deficiencies of human beings. So, you know, a bad institution requires a great leader. Good institutions expect bad leaders and set up systems around them to control their dysfunction. Um, and we sort of thought we had one. You know, you have a president; he's surrounded by advisors. The president's going to do something dumb. They say, "Don't do it." cabinet, national security staff, the intelligence, they come in, they say, here are the real facts, Mr. President. You've got the Senate, the House, their, their counterbalances. And yet it seems that in this particular case, in this particular perfect shitstorm, the way our system works is that every bad impulse of the president is actually amplified by the rest of the system. They actually say, you know, sure, Mr. President, or let's double down, or let's identify, let's make this our identity. Now, maybe you think I'm overstating it, but it's it does seem like the biggest breakdown on a national security issue that I've ever seen. What's your take? Oh, David, now you're sending me down the rabbit hole of biggest national security, right? Iran Contra. Hmm. But two hundred, not two hundred and ten thousand dead yet. Uh, certainly true, and I don't mean to minimize that, but I don't actually think the administration's bungling is responsible for all two hundred thousand dead. 
I'm by no means defending the administration. And I agree with your broader point that what we are seeing is an administration of senior officials selected precisely for their willingness to validate and um, carry out any crazy whim the president has, any policy, legal, constitutional or not. And I think that's a major reason to be concerned about a second Trump term, because, um, you know, I agree with the people who had some derision for this notion about adults in the room. But the people who, uh, like the excellent acting DOD comptroller, Elaine McCusker, who were willing to say the law doesn't permit this, have been pushed out of the administration. And so I think what you would see in a second Trump term is actually the kinds of things we are seeing right now, even amplified worse. And to conclude, David, you're exactly right that the administration has made this pandemic into a tragedy for the United States by its unwillingness to acknowledge the science of what was happening, by its unwillingness to take uh, the public safety measures that any responsible government should have taken. And I just, add, to add to that, David, if I may, I, I was just checking the uh, White House website um, to see if there's been any change made in the coronavirus page. And indeed, they've removed whatever you were supposed to link to when you clicked on what to do if you think you are sick. When you click on it, nothing happens now. I think that's because the president has not been doing what that site used to indicate was the answer to that question. Uh, and the other thing I just wanted to throw out here is that earlier, late last week, um, I was in a meeting with Dr. Shinya Yamanaka, who won the um, 2012 Nobel Prize in Medicine in Japan. And he's, he splits his time between UC San Francisco and Kyoto University. And we were talking about the current situation of COVID in Japan. Japan, unlike us, has had national policies. So it's uniform across the whole country. And they did a national six-week lockdown back in March and April. Today, uh, when you look at deaths per 100,000, Japan is at 1.2 deaths for every 100,000 Japanese. And the United States is at 63.2 for every 100,000 Americans. They have a case fatality rate of 1.5. And we have a case fatality rate of three. I mean, the numbers tell the story. And they tell you that this insane non-governance, this insane counter-governance, this insane denial of everything that science has to offer about this terrible disease has had real significant repercussions. We are the worst in the industrialized world. You know, there's an irony here. Um, you know, there was a, a one of one of eight trillion Trump administration micro scandals. Uh, you know, a few weeks back or a month ago, when when it was leaked or reported that Jared uh, that Jared Kushner had advised Trump that the pandemic was no big deal because it was just going to take out people in blue states. Um, the irony now is that although obviously New York and New Jersey, uh, in terms of early deaths, um, were, were, you know, way ahead in that sort of dubious, dubious race, um, that now increasingly COVID has become a scourge of so-called red states. And indeed, because, because the Trump administration has so aggressively politicized the pandemic, such that even the most simple and basic precautions, such as wearing masks when you when you're in crowded indoor areas, uh, has become a you know if you if you wear a mask, it's showing that you're a weak you know libtard, etc. Um, the the irony is that it is Trump's very core constituency whom he is placing most at risk 
uh, as a result of the politicization of this virus. And indeed, the trends in terms of in terms of infection rates uh, and deaths, we're seeing more and more of them amongst people who are probably more naturally likely to be Trump voters, just in terms of geography. And it's ridiculous. I mean, it's a terrible irony. And but it, but it you know it shows once again this is this is not a strategy that makes any sense at all on any level. It's not only irresponsible and indeed inhumane, it's, it also just seems ultimately likely to injure most the very people who Trump should be, if he's being you know, purely calculating and pragmatic about it. This, this ain't the blue states anymore, this is red state voters. Yeah, so Corey, one of the problems we've got is it's not just Trump. Um, almost instantly when he says something, it becomes amplified and, and, and reinforced into the political position of 40% of the United States of America. And so Senator Ron Johnson, um, not noted as one of the real bright lights of the Senate, um, uh, uh, but nonetheless, uh, an important Senator, who now has tested positive, was just quoted in a Colorado radio interview as saying, why do we think we can actually stop the progression of a contagious disease? Now, if there was something like Ebola, you take more extraordinary measures. But again, what we know, and certainly now, I mean, there's a level of unjustifiable hysteria about COVID. So you now have another Republican leader saying as his, his position, you know, I caught this disease and a lot of us caught this disease. And by the way, just as a footnote, as we are talking, CDC has now said it spreads on an aerosol basis beyond six feet. That's not just six feet. It's emphasizing it's actually more contagious than you know. There's now this whole sort of apparatus out there going to all these people that Rose is talking about you know, people who, you know, took hydroxychloroquine before and, and, and so forth and aren't wearing masks, saying this outbreak proves the opposite of what this outbreak proves. I mean, it's, 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 it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's Alice in Wonderland. I'm sorry, David, was there a question there? Um, yes. What do you think about that? Uh, yes, I think it's Alice in Wonderland. I also don't think it's uh, news, right? Like, um, yes, it's troubling that the president has so much support from many Republicans. Well, I understand. But, you know, one thing is having support. The other thing that I'm trying to get at is that, you know, this is not an abstract policy issue. This is a life and death issue. And that by having people who amplify things that actually put people at greater risk, it's not having more support for a position. It's increasing the likelihood that more people are sick. Yes, I agree. Okay. Um, Lori, where do we go from here? We've got uh, just a couple of minutes left here, but where do we go from here in terms of this in the run-up to this election, do you think? Well, my God, I mean, if if any of the people who have come up as infected uh, were adhering to CDC protocols, uh, they would be in isolation, in some form of quarantine or self-isolation. They would not be out campaigning. They would not be out with the president. The president himself would not set foot out of the White House, if that's where he's going at 6, 6.30 today, uh, under any circumstances until he's gone, not just two weeks from now, but the protocol is two weeks after you're asymptomatic and you've tested negative. So in other words, he's still a long way from clearing virus from his body and being asymptomatic. I don't see how you get to what is it, 29 days until the election? I don't see how he gets to 29 days and he can go out and campaign in rallies again. So he's, if he's going to follow any um, socially conscious 
protective protocol that has consideration for those around him, for the health and safety of others. He does not leave the White House or Walter Reed or wherever he's going to be sequestered um, before November 3rd. That's a game changer for the election. And frankly, the Biden camp had better be thinking about their exposure as well. Um, I think we may see the vice president's debate this week, and that may be the last debate. Or we may see a debate that's virtual with uh, the two sides uh, yelling at each other uh, through internet space. And the host having the power to mute. Mute. God, please. <laughs> Actually, I was favoring the idea that we should switch to Ellen DeGeneres doing it. <laughs> and with that button she pushes that makes people fly out of, into the stratosphere, um, that something of that nature might be more in line with the future. But at any rate, um, I mean, the problem here is that we don't really have anybody in charge. There's no one in charge. There's no one in charge at CDC. There's no one in charge uh, at HHS. There, it's all tracing back to a fairly tyrannical boss who is now at some state of compromise in his mind and his body with COVID and with the side effects of all these drugs he's taking. By the way, no human being we know of has ever had this particular cocktail of drugs in their body at once. I mean, we don't have any example to turn to and say, this is what happens when you mix dexamethasone with monoclonal antibody experimental therapy and this long list of drugs that rarely gets mentioned that he's already been taking at ba baseline, including Crestor and uh, what if it, what if it like quadruple in size or something horrible like that? Like, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking of the horror movie thing. You give the people, you know, you give them an unexpected drugs cocktail and you go, but terrible things could happen any second. Well, I mean, the, the real question is to what degree it affects his judgment. He's already an individual for whom many say judgment is, shall we say, reactive, very reactive, very volatile, not you know, carefully considered. I think that would be a fair statement that all Republicans would agree with. Um, and if we go the next step and say, well, what if the drugs make him more so? What if they aggravate this? Um, one of the side effects of dexamethasone is a sense of euphoria. It's a, it's a weird thing with steroid drugs. You can have a sense of joy and euphoria even as you're very, very sick. Um, I interviewed a lot of SARS survivors who went through the 2003 nightmare with the other coronavirus. Um, and during SARS, the key killer was this cytokine storm effect, this overreactive immune system response. And so they actually use very high dose steroids in, in sophisticated facilities in Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, and Southern China. And uh, many of the people who uh, survived because of those, years later as I'm interviewing them are explaining that, yeah, they were in this super high, they felt euphoric, they, life was beautiful. And then once they were well and the steroids were removed, they crashed into a very deep depression and they never shook it. They were stuck. It's very reminiscent of PTSD and, and that adrenaline high of being in the middle of danger. And when the adrenaline is suddenly down, uh, instead of going to baseline, you go lower. Uh, and that results in a sort of chronic fatigue syndrome-like sense of malaise and depression. I mean, is this what we'll see? Are we in the middle of watching these sorts of things unfold with the President of the United States on experimental treatments? Experimental, I can't say that enough. None of this protocol has undergone strict FDA licensing. Not a single thing he's been given. I do wonder, I mean, I do wonder about the possibility of hearings for uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett insofar as, you know, seeing people like Ron Johnson say, well, I'm showing up and so on. You know, it, it, there is a question of to what extent will other Republican senators, many of whom for age reasons or other reasons are in high risk categories, are they so hell bent on forcing a vote through prior to the election that they're willing to place themselves at increased personal risk as opposed to, you know, give it another week or so? Um, it'll be very interesting to see how that all plays out. 
Well, I've, you know, this is the point I've been raising because you do have to vote in person. There is no, you know, caveat that says, oh, and in a pandemic, you can all press yes from your home telephone. Uh, and that means that even if they don't come in for the hearings and they only come in to cast a vote, all those senators have to be in chambers. And the Democrats have every reason to say this is a danger to all, not only to the senators themselves who by and large are an elderly lot, but to all the pages, to all the aides, to all the security, capital police. I mean, this is a selfish, rotten way to behave. You're putting every single person at risk. Corey, last word. I was just going to pick, I was going to pick up on Rosa's point um, to connect back to your question, David, that is that I think Republicans in Congress are so far down the line with the president at this point that they will find a procedural way around. They will, um, they, they appear to be dead set on going ahead with the Supreme Court confirmation. So here we are. Um, The biggest national security story the biggest healthcare story, the biggest political story, the biggest international story um, in the world is all the same story right now. Now, I don't know whether that's going to change in the next three weeks, but I have a feeling it's not going to change in the next three weeks. And we're seeing just unbelievable developments on a daily basis, just including in the past, you know, 45 minutes while we've been doing this, the president, sick, likely to be sick for weeks to come, has taken the decision to go back to the White House, which is the primary locus, you know, of a super spreader event where one after another person is presumed is, is being found out to have the disease. Like you're taking this sick guy and you're putting him in the place where the disease is. Um, we will come back to it uh, each week and hopefully we'll be able to provide perspectives like we have here. Kavita went off um, uh, to do uh, MSNBC interview. I know Lori's got one in a, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes. We thank them for their time as we do, Rosa and Corey. Always, uh, it's good to have so many perspectives on this. I think we need it, particularly in a time when our government is not doing its role in telling us uh, the truth or, or, or what the best practices to follow are. So for now, That's this episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Go to thedsrnetwork.com for more information on what we've got going, and we'll talk to you all again soon. Stay healthy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout. 